Friends, this is Torah Studies. This is the real deal tonight. We're not fooling around. We have so much serious Torah study to get to because we are concluding the book of Bamidbar, the book of, of Numbers, and we are in a very broadcasting from a very special location. When I say we, I don't know who the we is, but I, I'll, I'll say me, that this is a very special location. I am right now currently in Pittsburgh visiting my mom along with my sister and my niece. So it's a bit of a family get-together. So it is great to be here. You could see the old Pittsburgh backdrop, a little bit of a different backdrop, right? This is the Pittsburgh backdrop. So it is great to be here with you. Technology is amazing because it brings us together despite physical distance. I want to also mention that next Wednesday night will be our very first back in-person edition of Torah Studies, not exclusively. We still have the hybrid option. You can join via Zoom, online, as usual, or you can join us in person. Um, either way, we are going to be back in person starting next week. We have Kabbalah Sunday morning. We have a new Lunch and Learn. We have a new Lunch and Learn on Monday afternoons. And um, we have the Wednesday night Torah studies, so three classes to get us started, three weekly classes consistently going to be taking place in person. And, of course, we'll have other programs and events and courses and all that stuff also in person as the opportunities or as the, as the weeks unfold. Okay, I think, uh, I think we're ready to jump in. This week's Torah portions are, it's a double portion, I should have mentioned, Matot and Masse. We have a double portion, and the focus of this conversation will be on human frailty and human failure. I sent out an email not that long ago, and the, uh, the nature of that email was, I quoted, um, what did I do? I quoted from the famous, um, the, the Piskum, the famous saying, which is, to err is human, but I have a twist on that tonight, the twist is, to err is divine. Because we're going to see tonight how mistakes are actually divine. Typically, we think of mistakes as something, you know, terrible and horrible. And sometimes, indeed, it really feels that that is the case. We're going to have a, a deeper insight into the nature of mistakes, the nature of failure in tonight's session. But let, let's, let's ease ourselves into that conversation by talking about <coughs> the opening theme of the second of the two portions. Again, there's matot and masse. So what are these portions about? Um, just a quick note, I'm going to mute everybody just to make sure that we have our um, background nice and quiet. Recording in progress. So in the second Torah portion, masse, it begins with a discussion, a conversation about the journeys. Masse actually means journeys. It says, Ela masse, these are the journeys of the children of Israel, and it lists 49 journeys. 49 different um, travels from the land of Egypt to the cusp of the promised land. 42 separate journeys. Let's read this inside. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you. And uh, let's read the opening of the Torah portion together. The first three verses. Paul, um, if you don't mind, please unmute and jump right in to text 1A. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who left the land of Egypt in their allegiance under the charge of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting points for their journeys according to the word of God, and these were their journeys with their starting points. They journeyed from Ramesses in the first month. On the 15th day of the first month, 
On the day following the Passover sacrifice, the children of Israel left triumphantly before the eyes of all the Egyptians. Thank you. These are the. This is the first. Uh, these are the first three verses of the Torah portion of Maseh, the final portion in the book of Numbers. You could see it right here in the in the source. It's chapter 33 of the book of Numbers, verses 1 through 3. And it talks about the journeys. These are the journeys. And it begins with journey, journey number one. These are the journeys from Egypt, out of Egypt, to the, whole, to the promised land. Journey number one was from Ramses, out of Egypt. <laughs> the first step is get out of Egypt. Okay, so far so good. The Midrash has a very interesting insight on this conversation. And I'll tell you for a moment what the Midrash is kind of grappling with. We find ourselves now at the end of the book of Numbers. The Exodus happened 40 years prior, and suddenly the Torah is getting very nostalgic. The Torah is saying, before we continue, before we continue the conversation, these are all the journeys that the Jewish people took out of Egypt up to this point, 42 different journeys. You might wonder why, what's the point? Why are we just bringing up old journeys? This is what the Midrash is addressing, which I will share with you and we're going to read together right now. Um, let's ask, let's see, who are we going to ask for text 1B? Let's ask Richard of Susan and Richard fame. Richard, please, yes, you, please read text 1B from the Midrash. I should also mention before you start, Rashi, who's the primary biblical commentary, Rashi in his commentary quotes from this Midrash with slight variation, but this is pretty much the source of Rashi's comment, so let's, let's go to the source. It is analogous to a king whose son became sick, so he took him to a faraway place to have him healed. On the way back, the father began setting all the stages of the journey, saying to him, this is where we sat, here we were cold, and here you had a headache. So too, God instructed Moses to list all the places the Jewish people angered God. That Thus it is stated, these are the journeys. The Midrash takes, let me just throw some commentary here for a second. The Midrash takes a very interesting angle, and I will tell you, I'm going to be straight up and transparent here, I'm going to ask four questions following our discussion of this Midrash. So, you know what, might as well you guys start thinking of questions that you have on this and then we can compare notes. I have four questions. Um, it's not, don't worry, it's not the Seder, even though we're talking about the Exodus. I have four questions and, uh, and feel free to add yours as well. But let me just, before we get to questions, let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. I'm keeping this image, this, uh, uh, the text up here. So the Midrash says, it's like a king. The son, the prince, is sick. He takes him to a faraway land for refua, for healing. And on the way back, he says, Oh, you remember? This is where we sat. This is where you got cold. This is where we were cold. This is where you had a headache. Going through all of the challenges that were on the journey up, now that they're going back home, they recount, they're stopping every place that they had gone on the way to the faraway land to get healed. Now heading back, they stop at each and every one of those places and reminisce about the difficult times. So too, right, God tells Moses to list all the places where the Jewish people angered God. Okay, that is the Medrash's take. So, in other words, what's the point of, of, of recalling the 42 journeys? Because they were filled with headaches. They were filled with colds. They were filled with challenges. So, we're reminiscing. 
on the, on the bad old times. Right? There's the good old times, and these are the bad old times. Okay. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing and check in with you guys. Does this make sense? Yes? Any questions? I have four. You know that already. Jump in. Any questions so far? You have to unmute, though, to ask. So, David Lazan. So, so the first one, leaving Egypt, was bad? Good point. How can we say that leaving Egypt was bad? What was so bad about leaving Egypt? Good. What else? Good. Good first question. I, I can understand why he would, what God would say, uh, the bad times. So, you know, we got through this. We did it. We got through it. So if bad times happen in the future, you'll know that we, got, we can get through it. But however, why not the good times? Why not the good times? Good. Yeah. Perfect. But good. also learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Okay. Good. I like that. Okay. Good. What else? What else? Any other questions? What else you guys got? Questions on the Midrash. Okay, I will ask a few questions. All right, I have, um, I have, like I said, a list of four questions that I am going to just kind of drop in there. Number one, why relive the trauma? It was bad enough the first time around, so we're going to reminisce about trauma? I know, we're talking about Jews and this sounds very Jewish. Do you remember when things were terrible? Do you remember when we were sick, when you were sick? Do you remember when this challenge happened, that challenge happened? Gewalt! I mean, trauma is bad enough the first time around. We're going to go reminisce about the trauma, the bad times. Who does that, right? Focus on the good memories. You focus on the bad memories. Again, I know it's really Jewish, but even, even then it, there's got to be a limit. So that's my first question. Second question is the whole analogy or parable or metaphor, whatever you want, however you want to characterize this example of the king and the prince and he needed healing and he traveled and he came back. The whole thing doesn't make sense. And I know you know what I'm talking about here. The whole, the, ana the analogy and the analog don't actually match up. How do I know this? Because you know this. How many journeys, how many directional journeys did they take in the analogy? Hold up. If you don't want to unmute, that's fine. Hold up. The fingers that correspond to the directions that were traveled in the analogy. Two. I even when I say fingers, not everyone's like, ah, who's gonna do that, right? I can't be bought, I can't get. Alright. Two, they went there and they reminisced on the way back. Let me ask you a klutz kasha, the obvious question. How many directions did the Jews travel in these 42 journeys? You can feel free to hold up the fingers again. One, what kind of, what kind of comparison? It's like the, the rabbis are like, let me break this down. Here's what we got. The Jews journey from point, from Egypt to the cusp of the land of Israel, 42 stops. What's it like a father and son, a king and a son who go there and on the way back, it's like, whoa, you lost me on the way back. Who's going on the way back? Are we going back to Egypt? What analogy are we talking? Are you with me on this? Yes, anybody. Thumbs up. Yes, thank you. The, the whole analogy does not make sense or parable, whatever. It does, the whole thing doesn't make sense. What, is God taking Moses on, on a journey back to all the stops and saying, oh, they're this, they're that, they're the other? What's going on here? So I have two questions so far. Number one, why reminisce about the bad times? And number two, 
what kind of what 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 parallel is there between what actually happened and this concocted story about a king and a son and healing in faraway land and headaches and colds and going back and what is what is going on here? How does that add to our understanding of this? I'm going to add a third question now, which is really not one of my original four. But see, Torah studies, you get bonus questions. That's how it works. What benefit is? What benefit are we getting from the entire analogy altogether? Like, how is this? What is added by the analogy that we wouldn't have known otherwise? I guess we wouldn't have known that we're reminiscing about the bad old times, but that seems like a not a nice thing anyway. So like, we're reliving trauma, that's questionable. We're not actually going back, so why is that the analogy? And what's the whole point of any of this parallel slash parable slash analogy? Okay, I've asked enough questions. I'm gonna ask two more. Okay, you ready? Because I told you four and then I had a bonus, so we had three minus one is two. That means that leaves two questions. Okay, yes, you with me on this? Question number three or question number four, depending on which list we're counting from. Why list all of the places to begin with? What is the point? God says to Moses, let's talk about the places. Yeah, these are all the places that we've journeyed. What's going on? Moses is passing away soon. Is it kind of like a trip down memory lane? Is that what's going on? Is that what the midget is trying to tell us? That whole thing seems a little bit questionable. And... This is more of a technical question, semantics question, a question in the language. It says that these are the journeys, I'm paraphrasing the opening verse of the Torah portion, or the second of the Torah portions, these are the journeys that the children of Israel took when they left Egypt, which the, the mystics understand to mean that all of these journeys are journeys in leaving Egypt, but technically there's only one journey in which we left Egypt, which is journey number one. Are you with me on that? Yes? Let me, let me explain. They were in Egypt, and then they went on 42 journeys, and now they're at the border of Israel. Sounds great. How many journeys did it take them to leave Egypt? One. <laughs> that first journey took them out of the borders of Egypt. But it says, Elamase, these are the journeys in which they left Egypt. That plural is in, is in syntax and grammar. If we want to be just annoying, we can say... Uh, that's not ex exactly correct. There weren't journeys that took us out of Egypt. There was one journey that took us out of Egypt. Now, you want to say, these are the journeys that began with the first journey that took us out of Egypt? That makes sense. But you can't tell me that these are the journeys that got us out of Egypt. That's not exactly accurate. There was one journey that got us out of Egypt. So what does that mean? We're left with four or five questions, depending on who you're asking. Even in this class, there seems to be a debate, at least within myself, as to how many questions we have. Number one, why the midrash? Why the retros? Why, why bring up, why dredge up old trauma? Why is this analogy of going back if no one's going back? Um, what's the purpose of the counting altogether? What's the purpose of listing the journeys, I mean? And of course, um, this last question which is, how are there multiple journeys leaving Egypt? There's only one journey out of Egypt. I believe that some of you have heard these questions before. We've asked them in other classes. And some of these topics that we're going to talk about tonight have come up in other contexts, but I'm going to tell you this right now. This is going to be one of the most bold and daring and dramatic ideas, What we, the core ideas of tonight's class, are going to be some of the most daring, bold, and dramatic ideas you've ever heard 
to the point that I can almost guarantee this, some of you are going to be uncomfortable with what we're about to teach. Because you'll be like, you cannot say that. And I'm telling you, you're going to catch yourself thinking about what I'm teaching, what I'm sharing with you. That can't be right. That doesn't make sense. That seems wrong. Blasphemy. Heresy. That's wrong. How dare you? How could you? And about God, you're saying that? All right. Calm down. Everyone take it easy. You're going to ask these questions. I want you to know in advance you're going to get, you're going to get disturbed. You're going to get upset. You, but, but you'll calm down also. Everything will be explained. And hopefully all will end well. You with me on this? Yes? You ready to get your blood pressure up a little bit? All right, let's jump in. We have four questions. We need some answers. We need some perspective. Let's get rocking and rolling. So let's talk about the journeys. 42 journeys. Any fans of the Hitchhiker's Ga Guide to the Galaxy? Raise of hand. Yes. Yes. Yeah, maybe. No. Anybody's heard of it? What is the answer? David's got it. What is the answer to life? 42. How many journeys were there of the Jewish people out of Egypt or from Egypt to the land of Israel? You guessed it, 42. There were 42. Hold on. Was Hank Aaron's number 42? Am I incorrect? Or Willie? Who was 40, uh, 44? Someone looked that up. All right, we have our team of experts. Jackie, Jackie Robinson, thank you. Jackie Robinson, 42. So 42, clearly a very special number. But in the context of the Torah, we have 42 journeys out of Egypt. What I want to begin in our analysis and explanation is with the following point. The mystics understand that these are journeys not just of physical places on the route from a physical land of Egypt to a physical land of Israel, but they are rather stages in history and stages in every person's life. In other words, Egypt, we're going to get symbolic now. All right, let's get symbolic. Egypt symbolizes birth. Why birth? Because Egypt is the birth of a nation. In the language of, I believe, Isaiah, one of the Jewish prophets says, that what is what happened at the Exodus? It was God extracting a nation, the Jewish nation, from the bowels, from the innards of another nation. So the Jewish people were slaves, swallowed up in a nation, the nation of Egypt, and God extracted the Jewish people out of Egypt and granted us our own peoplehood, our own nationhood, our own identity, our own purpose, our own vision, with a vision statement, Ten Commandments, and a Torah, right? It's very official. Okay, good, perfect. So Egypt represents birth, Genesis, not to mix books of Torah, because the Genesis of the Jewish people is in Exodus, but I digress. So, but Exodus represents Egypt, that first step represents the idea of breaking out and breaking in. In other words, birth and renewal and the beginning of the journey which literally is. That's step number one. And what's Israel? What's the promised land? The end of the journey. It's when you reach the pro whatever the promised land is, it's attaining the goal. So you had, you start on the journey toward the goal. That's getting out of Egypt and arriving in the Holy Land is arriving at the goal. Now, if we stop right here, does this resonate? That in our lives we have journeys that we take and we have ideas that are birthed in our minds and then we begin walking, we begin striving toward that, and then hopefully one day we arrive and we, we fulfill those dreams? Sure. So we have these steps along the way. 
42 steps, whatever those exactly are in each of our experiences, we have steps, we, have, we, we take these, these um, journeys to get from the segment, segmented journeys from the starting point to the destination. I want to share with you a mystical text that shares this on a historical level because in true, and everything's connected, right? This exists in history. So creation, Genesis creation would be step one. The Messianic era, Mashiach, right? The, a, per, a utopian world would be the final step. That's the promised land. Right, let me just check in. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Yes, creation is the first step. A perfected world, a better world, uh, a Mashiach world is the, is the last step. Okay, so that's one journey. In our personal lives, we embark on... Well, birth would be... And within the human experience, birth would be step one, and death, the culmination of our life's achievements, achievements would be the, la the end of the journey. Um, within our own lives, we t have goals that we start and, and hopefully attain, and, and, and all, uh, everything in between. So I'm going to share this text with you, and let's see how the mystics explain it. This is text number two from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, in his Lakute Torah. I'm going to read this because it needs a little bit of commentary. It's a little bit mystical and a little bit symbolic. Lots, lots of symbolism in Kabbalah, as you know. So I'm going to try to do some commentary as I, do, as I read this. What was the purpose of the 42 journeys in the desert? All journeys, that's the question. The answer is all journeys pointed to Jericho. Jericho was the first city in Israel that the Jewish people arrived in, right? So the last step, from outside of Israel into Israel ended up in Jericho. So the desert through which the Jews traversed is called the desert of the nations, about which it is stated, God led you through that great and awesome desert in which there were snakes, vipers, and scorpions, namely an evil place where all negative forces feed. Let's continue, and then I'm going to go back and explain a little bit. The 42 journeys were so that those who hate him flee from before him, namely to cut off all vitality from the negative forces. This was achieved by the Jews who were created in the image of God, traveling about the desert. And the primary purpose of their journeys was to, quote, leave Egypt, namely any sort of constraint. Thus, all the journeys, were, you see we're answering some questions, all the journeys are considered to be the journey out of Egypt until they finally reach Jericho, which represents the Messianic era. I'm actually going to stop right here in the middle of a sentence because I think we have enough to make us dangerous. Let me explain. So in Kabbalah, this is from a mystical text, in Kabbalah it says that what are the 42 journeys these are the journeys, again, historically, this was from Egypt to the Promised Land. And what was, where, where did these 42 journeys take place? They took place in the desert. They traversed a wilderness, a no-man's land. What is a wilderness? Literally, no-man's land, a place where humans don't typically dwell. In a more mystical sense, it's a place where God doesn't dwell. I'm not saying that God is not found in the desert physically, but the desert represents a wasteland, which represents a spiritual wasteland. So if we're speaking of symbology, desert represents a desolate place devoid of godliness. And the purpose of the travels through the desert is to cut off the energy that flows to negativity and to rather fill the space, fill that void, the, the space of snakes, vipers, and scorpions, a physically and spiritually dangerous space with spirituality and divinity, Torah and mitzvot, and generally speaking, light. So, what's the point? All 42 journeys are essentially about a process 
of transforming a barren wilderness into spiritual, spiritually barren wilderness into a flourishing spiritual oasis. That was the spiritual task. Okay. That's all of our tasks, by the way, right? We all live in a world in which there's room for improvement, right? If HGTV was doing a series, spiritual series, it would be Fixer Upper World Edition, right? This is, right, this is, there's a lot to fix in the world. Tikkun Olam, right? We're all about repairing the world step by step, various means, right? Spiritually, practically, etc. And that's essentially what was happening. They left Egypt, they traveled through the desert, and each and every step along the way, the goal was to permeate a wilderness with a higher light. Okay? Fantastic. Which is why we've already answered two of the questions. What's the purpose of the journey? purpose of the journey is to accomplish something. It's not just, I think I need to explain this for a second. It's not just the journey is filler on the way to get to the destination. I think I need to elaborate on that for a second. One might think that the whole purpose of leaving Egypt is to get into Israel. So as long as we're not there, then we're just wasting time. This is telling us not so fast. Every step along the way, there is an accomplishment. Does that make sense what I just said? It's not like, you know, until we get there, oh man, you know, it's like the kids in the car. Are we there yet? When do we arrive? Right? It's like, oh, let's get there. It's all about the destination. So the Torah is telling us 42 journeys. Why, why recall the journeys? I asked one of my questions. Why mention the journeys? Because they're not just, if you look at a journey as just a, a way to get to where you're going. So yeah, you don't need to glorify the journey. It's about the destination. But the Torah tells us, no, pay attention to the journeys because... Oh, David's asking about 49 journeys. Man, we did that last year. 49 and 42. 49 from above to below and below to above. There's a deep insight on that. It's a great question. Why not 49 journeys like the 49 countings of the Omer? It's an excellent question. And I, I said, oh man, not because of the question, but because like, oh man, in my head is like, when did I teach it? I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, but I think I recall teaching it on Zoom in my kid's bedroom, the one with the bike behind it. Anyway, so, so we have to look at the archives. But back to the story. We might think the Havamina is, the, the potential thought is, no, it's about the, about the destination. So now we're, at the, we're knocking on the door of the Holy Land. Let's go in. God gets nostalgic. He's like, no, let's talk about the journeys. Who cares about the journeys? Every step along the way was impactful, was intentional, was, um, had an effect. It wasn't just a filler on the way to the main dish. It was a main dish in and of itself. Which is also why, and, and I read it inside in that text that we just read, which is also why it says, Elamase. These are the journeys of Exodus, because every journey is its own Exodus. Because if the Exodus means getting out of a bad place, then every single step we take is about transformation and getting the world out in this moment of a negative place into a positive place. Does that make sense? Every step along the way is another Exodus. Because every challenge that we encounter is an opportunity for Exodus. Every time we bring light into a dark place, we've achieved an exodus. If exodus is, let's just use a different word, a breakthrough, then life is all about every moment being a breakthrough, potentially, and hopefully in practice, a breakthrough. It's not just about that original step out of the first challenge. Every moment along the way, it's about a breakthrough. So now what we have is some good background information. And I'm telling you, I want everyone to stay with me because there is such depth 
that we have yet to share that is going to blow your mind. So what we established so far is that the journeys are not just you know, physical steps along the way, but a spiritual calling for spiritual transformation to transform a wilderness into a flourishing spiritual oasis, which is why all their journeys are significant in and of themselves, and why each one is deemed, why each one is considered to be an exodus unto itself, because each one is about that breakthrough transformation. Fantastic. This helps us understand something else. And what does it help us understand? This helps us understand why according to the Midrash, why the Midrash, why it is that we're dealing with bringing up past trauma. There's two ways to create a transformation. <laughs> One way is through transforming something in a positive way, and the other is through difficulty and hardship. As you and I know, and I, I don't, I'm sure I don't need to elaborate on this, there's tremendous light that can come from tremendous darkness. And typically, it works like this. The darker a situation is, the more light it can give birth to. Why is it like this? That would require um, information that perhaps is beyond all of our minds. But in the structure of the world that God set up, the way it works is that it is necessity that is the mother of invention. It is the darkness that precedes the, the, the light. Right? Growth is preceded by constraint that's prior to it, and so the difficult times are those that yield the greatest light. So if the travels in the desert were all about yielding light, what better way to yield light than to face challenge, than to encounter some traumatic experiences. So when the Jews are traveling and there's no water or there's no food or there's a spiritual crisis, all of these are moments of growth. Growth happens, could happen in a straightforward way. I grow step by step, but growth all, but even greater growth happens, exponential growth happens when we encounter an obstacle, when we encounter a wall, when we encounter some opposition to our progress. That makes us redouble our efforts, summon a greater strength, push through the barrier, and unleash a greater light than any light that we have been accustomed to before. Let me check in. Does this make sense so far? Yes? Obstacles yielding greater light. Okay, so this explains the following. Well, before we get to an explanation, so here's the deal. When we encounter a challenge, right, we're, we're on our journey and everything, and everything is going well, and then we encounter a roadblock. What's the first reaction? Jump in. What's the first reaction? You encounter a challenge, a roadblock, some sort of disaster. Talk to me. What does that feel like? You want a complaint? A complaint. Complaint. Challenge. Say it again. A challenge. A challenge. Does it feel good or does it feel or does it feel not good? Not good. Not good. Okay. So when do we realize? Now and and then it's only later, hopefully, that we realize the benefit of the challenge. Correct. Hindsight is 2020, so we hit a challenge, but because of that challenge, we had to be more creative, we had to figure out another way, we had to summon some strength and energy that we never knew we had, etc. And because of that, we reached a greater place in our lives than we could have before. I, mean, I heard this line recently, you know, there's post-traumatic stress, and then there's post-traumatic growth. So we're talking about the post-traumatic growth. There's the growth that follows the trauma, 
But when do you realize the growth? At some later point in time. And so when can you say, ah, this thing that, I, that was terrible is actually a good thing. When does that typically happen? Help me out here. At the end. Later down the road. Later down the road. Which is why the Midrash says that what's going on? The king is traveling with his son. And as they journey forward, they hit challenge after challenge after challenge. And how does it feel then? Painful. Correct? But at the end of the journey, what can they do? Well, in the, in the physical example, they actually start walking back. But conceptually, what happens at the end of the journey? They can look back in retrospect and say, you know what? That challenge led to that breakthrough. That, that darkness led to that light. That difficulty led to that breakthrough. And thus, all of the challenge was actually for a greater good. But we can't do that going in. You can't do that. You can't see that. On the straightforward journey, that's only something that we see on the back. One way to, to just give you a bit of a context to this. So Moses famously, at some point in the book of Exodus, asked to see God's face. Moses says to God, can I see your face? And God answers, no one can see my face and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the, the cleft of the rock. I'll put you in the side of the mountain, the cave, and I'm going to pass by you, and I'll cover, your, I'll cover your eyes with my hand, as if God has a hand, right? But I'll cover your eyes, and you won't see my face, but you will see my back. Very cryptic. One of the classic explanations is along these lines. As we face life head on, we don't see the light in the darkness. What we encounter is darkness. We encounter challenge. We encounter heartbreak. We encounter loss. We encounter disappointment. We encounter negativity. We encounter dreariness. It's only much later, after we've walked a few miles or a few thousand miles or a few million miles, that we can look back at the end of the journey and say, I see what this was for. I see, hopefully, I see what that was for. I see that this led me to this experience. It was only that door closing that led to another one opening, or at least me, or, or maybe me breaking through the, the, the wall to open up another opening for myself etc. This explains what the Midrash is talking about. The Torah is telling us about the journeys. And the Midrash says, let me tell you about these journeys. It's like a, a king, a father, the king, and his son, and the king is sick and encountering challenge after challenge after challenge on the journey. But once the journey is done, once they reach the end of the line, they can turn back around and laugh almost. They can turn back around and nostalgically not relive the trauma, but recognize the growth that happened because of the trauma. Does that make sense? This is, what the, this is why at the end of the journey, the Torah is looking back and saying these are the journeys because they were all about growth. It's reframing past experiences. That past experience that you thought was a challenge was really an opportunity for growth. And now, at the end, you and I can even see that. So this already, you know, it's 8-11 it's, it's right now on my computer screen, at least that's what the time says. So, I mean, this right now, even now is Dayenu. We have a beautiful, a good que some questions, 
we have a, 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 a psukah, we have verses, we have a midrash, we have questions, we have mystical explanation, we have, we have an answer that puts everything together, and we even can have some life lessons, right? What are the life lessons? Life lessons are in our lives, just like it was then, just like it was with the Jewish journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land. They encountered challenges, but it was all forward steps in retrospect, just like in the story of the king and the prince and the, the sickness and the, the healing, it was all about positive steps and a breakthrough. So too it is in our lives. We go through challenge, we hit walls, we don't understand, it feels bad, it feels painful, it feels terrible. But we know that looking back, we'll discover something from it, some light that came from it. And that's the message. Beautiful. Have a good night, everybody. Joking. So we're still left. We're still left with plenty of time. And the reason is because after all of the above, when Moses and God are telling us in the Torah, teaching us how to look back and see the positive that emerges from the negative, how to look back at trauma and see not the pain, but the light, after all is said and done, we're still left with an incredible question, which necessitates us to move much deeper into this topic. And the question is, all of the above makes sense when we're talking about, I'm going to use... I'm going to use a borrowed term when we're talking about an act of God. So when you're talking about a challenge that God gives us, we can say, I know this is for the good. I know this is for my growth. I know this will yield tremendous light. And in retrospect, we can see how even though this challenge was put in front of us, it led to something much greater. Thank you, Hashem, for giving me the challenges which made me stronger. But how can we say the same thing about the mistakes that we've made? How could we be so presumptuous to say that not the challenges that God gave us, but the challenges that we gave ourselves, the mistakes that we made, are points of growth in our lives. To tell me that philosophically and theologically that God would only place opportunities in front of us and therefore even though it seems like a challenge it's it's about something greater it's about a greater light that's something that still requires faith and trust and meditation and implementation and, and feeling it and living it in our lives that's a challenge in and of itself but to tell me even further that it's not about the stuff that God does but it's the stuff that we do that smacks of chutzpah to say that the mistakes that I made are necessarily part of some sort of cosmic growth plan that seems to be very presumptuous and probably not accurate. Which leads me to the following question. When you look back at the journeys of the Jewish people, at the 42 journeys that the Torah lists, the, there are some challenges that came from without, but there are plenty of challenges that came from within. There are plenty of the journeys, plenty of journeys that were complicated, not because God made it complicated, but because we made it complicated. How can we therefore say with certainty that all 42 journeys are upward and forward movements and in retrospect we'll see it, how can we be so sure that our mistakes will lead to benefits? Does that make sense? Does my question make sense? Yes? Ooh, I'm getting a big, I'm getting some nopage over here. I'm getting some, not exactly. All right, let's read this question as the Rebbe formulates it, probably better than I can say it. So let's do this together. Give me a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Here we go. Let's ask David. 
Dr. David, please read text number four. One can understand that in as much as the overall plunge into the wilderness of the desert is set up in advance by God, it is ultimately rendered a kindness and part of the climb up. But those, but those times that the Jews angered God in the desert were a result of the Jews' wanted sins. In other words, the Jews sent in motion to downfall beyond what was ordained from on high. What then compels us to argue that they too are part of the climb up? So just to state this in my own words, hopefully clearer than what I was trying to say before, this class is asking us to believe that every challenge is an opportunity for growth. And what the Rebbe is asking here in text 4 is the following. If you tell me that every challenge that God puts in my way is for a breakthrough, I can accept that because God knows what He's doing and God gives me challenges in order for me to grow. Got it. But what about the challenges that I create for myself? Who says there has to be an upside? Maybe I just messed up. In other words, and honestly, if we were, if we were to do this right, I, in, in a dialogue, in a, in, a, in a comfortable space, I would ask, not, not a personal question, not specifics, but a, but a question. Have you ever felt in your life that you've done something that was, that was not good, that did not lead to a good thing, right? Is there something that you did that was just straight up not good? It was, you know, it, you messed up and it just, it just wasn't good. That's it. And that's where it ended. And everyone could probably say, yeah, yeah, I, I messed up. It was pretty bad. And, and that's it. Now, you can believe that when God gives you a challenge, it's for you to push through and, and get a breakthrough. But when I give myself a challenge, when I mess, when I, when I say give myself a challenge, I mean, when I mess up and derail the plan, who says there's an upside to that? Which gets us back to our question. In these 42 journeys, there were plenty of times that the Jews shot themselves in the foot. Like, I don't know, the golden calf? <laughs> or like when the Jews complained about the water or about the food, the manna, or about the meat that they didn't have? Right, Jews were complaining throughout. There were many, what about the sin of the spies? That was self-inflicted, self-inflicted challenge. So who says that self-inflicted challenge is beneficial? The whole premise of this class is that the challenges are beneficial. So the question now is, yeah, if God gives you a challenge, you can believe it's beneficial. But if you give yourself a challenge, who says it's beneficial? Maybe it's just a mistake, and that's where it ends. So this will lead us, does that question make sense? Yes, I'm getting a few more nods than before, so I'm happy. Good. This leads us into the main wild idea of today's class, which is, and I'll just cut to the chase over here, Kabbalah teaches us, Hasidic philosophy teaches us that not only are life's challenges from God, not only are life's challenges um, uh, for a higher purpose, but our mistakes, yes, the ones that we chose on our own, the ones that we self-inflicted upon ourselves, hence the phrase self-inflicted, the mistakes that we make are also from God. And now you're going to think, so what? You're telling me that God made us sin? There's no free choice? And I told you you're going to get upset when I say this. But yes, this is what I'm saying. Even our mistakes, the ones that we choose, are also from God. Let me explain. 
God provides the challenge for sin. So let me take you back on a journey. Back to the Garden of Eden. Oh, it's so lovely. It's so beautiful. Adam and Eve frolicking in the garden without a care in the world. They have everything you can imagine, everything you could want. And God says to Adam, FYI, there's this one tree. Don't eat from it. Okay? Already a little bit suspicious, right? If God doesn't want me to eat from it, then why is he putting it here? And then God sends a serpent to tell Eve, hey, psst, try the tree, try the fruit. It's fantastic. God doesn't want you to eat it because God doesn't want you to become like him. The whole, all the shenanigans of the serpent. Yeah, so let me ask you a question. Why does God go through such lengths to entice Adam and Eve? The typical answer is because, oh, free choice, balance. There's a much more daring explanation. And that is that God set up Adam and Eve to sin. God set Adam and Eve up to sin. And you know what the golden calf? You know what happened with the golden calf? Yeah. The Jews get the Torah at Sinai, or they get the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up the mountain to learn the rest and to, um, and to get the tablets. Comes back down, and the Jews, 40 days later, are, are worshiping the golden calf. Do you know what the Midrash says about that? I think some of you do. The Jews counted 40 days. And they miscounted, but they mis and they thought they said, where's Moses? It says that God sent them, or, or God sent through a messenger, an image of Moses in a coffin. Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. They saw an image of Moses deceased. And they said, Moses is gone. We need a replacement. Let's make a golden calf. Who showed the people that image? Who showed the people that image? An angel? Satan? God himself? I don't remember exactly who did it, but I'll tell you this. In Judaism, we don't believe that there's any other force outside of God. Which means if the Jews were shown that, God wanted them to see that. God wanted them to believe that Moses was gone. Why? To entice them into sin. So typically we understand that yes, there's a strong enticement toward negativity for us to push against. But tonight, we go with a daring approach. And the daring approach is that God is setting the stage for failure. Not that God makes the negative choice for us. No, we do that on our own. But God creates the path and adorns it with lights and candies and flowers and all sorts of attractiveness to lead us down that path, although we chose to do it, but God leads us down that path. Why? For the benefit that comes after and through choosing to walk in darkness. There's an upside to challenge, not only the challenges that God throws our way, but the challenges that we throw our own way because even the challenges that we inflict upon ourselves ultimately are also coming from God. Again, to be clear in the distinction, God doesn't choose the sin for it. God doesn't make the choice of sin for us. We still have that free choice. But the scenarios that led to it and the result of the sin is absolutely per God's intention. So in the language of Kabbalah, we would say the following. Sin. Sin is hepech is against God's will. 
but it's lefiha kavana, but it's in accordance with God's plan. Are you with me on this? The act of sin is against God's will, but it's in accordance, or the after, the result at least is in accordance with God's master plan. Yes? Who's uncomfortable? I see some people uncomfortable, and I'm loving it, because I told you it's going to happen. Yes, the choice of sin is ours, and it's not good, and it's wrong, and God said not to do it, and we did it anyway, and it's a problem. All of that is true, not changing that fact. But the result of the sin, where we find ourselves post-sin, is exactly where we were meant to be. You can't do that going in on the journey up, but in retrospect, you can do it on the journey back. You can do it as an example, the parable of the, of the father, the, the king, and the, and the prince. You can do it on the way back to see how this darkness led to a greater breakthrough, even the one of my own choosing, because God also drives this. Let me share with you this text that should explain it. And I'm going to read this, text 5, from the Rebbe. Any deterioration that society or an individual experiences as a result of human activity and the irresponsible exercise of free choice is ultimately, listen to this, in accordance with God's plan and therefore must, lead, must also lead to a productive goal. In fact, these deteriorations are part and parcel of God's productive goal. True, and here the Rebbe walks that tightrope that I'm trying to walk here. True, a sinful act is absolutely contrary to God's will. However, its result, the decline in society's moral standing or an individual does not contradict his will. Consequently, the decline is not a genuine descent, but rather a necessary component of the ascent to which it leads, which means that God... The descent is all part of God's plan, not just the setbacks that God gives us, but the setbacks that we give ourselves, because God set it up, and God ultimately wants us to be in that place of darkness to break out and accomplish something great. So, now you might ask, well, what if we don't make the negative choice? What if we re resist it? So we're not in the place of darkness. So we God wanted us to be in the place of darkness, but we're in a place of light. So the truth is there's growth both ways. There's growth by making the tough decisions that are good, but there's even greater growth that happens from making the negative, from choosing negatively and from that place of darkness rebounding with a greater light, which we'll speak about in a moment what exactly that means. But here's the point. Either way there's growth. One way is normative growth. The other way is exponential growth, which is why there's a lot of opportunities for exponential growth in our lives that we're choosing you know, day in and day out. Um, okay, so I need to go, we need to go a little bit deeper. Not only is the descent of sin bringing us to a greater ascent, but the only way to rise, as I just mentioned, the only way to rise to the level that God wants us to rise is through that negative action. Think, as I said before, that God creates certain opportunities at any given moment. Sometimes it's not even an option. We don't even have that option. Sometimes the option presents itself, the negative option presents itself, the idea presents itself, the, op the actual opportunity presents itself. Where does it come from? Again, it's being guided by God. Not that we sin. That's on us. But once we've sinned, if we've sinned, 
to then be, 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 be primed and prepped to bounce even higher. Let me share with you another text along these lines. Take a look at text number six. God is the paragon of goodness. And it is the nature of one who is good to always bestow goodness. In other words, God is the best goodness ever. Therefore, inasmuch as God is the one who enables the deterioration, we must conclude that no alternative path exists to arrive at an ascent of this magnitude. Not just this is also a path up. There's no other way up other than the sin. For had there been, listen to this, the Rebbe asked rhetorically, for had there been an easier, better path, one that avoids suffering and lapses, why would God provide a more difficult route? God wants us ultimately to grow. God is the... the, the st Listen, you can disagree with the starting point, but this is the starting point of this idea. God is the paragon of goodness, and God wants us to have the best. So if God gives us the opportunity for sin, puts it right in front of us, and we choose it, we must conclude that, number one, it's for a greater ascent, and number two, there was no other way to get there. Because if there was another way to get there, the God would have given us a straightforward path up and not give us the, the, the downward path to, get, to ultimately get up. I, so this is the daring idea that we have here. That not only is God's challenges for, for an ascent, not only is our own mistakes for a way up, but it's the only way up sometimes, and the only way to achieve the greatest goodness that awaits us. So, what practically are we talking about here? We're talking about this in vague terms. There's an upside to sin. What is it? So, there's two basic explanations that both are relevant here, both generally speaking and also in our relationships with, uh, with God and, and with each other. Number one, when we make a mistake, it typically evokes a greater passion to get back to a good place. Think about a human relationship. You messed up, you said something not nice, you did something wrong, you were inconsiderate, you feel bad about it, right? You messed up, you feel bad about it, now you're driven that much more strongly to never do it again. So the passion, the intensity that you have to make this relationship right is directly proportionate to how badly you messed up. So the negative of messing up propels you positively to repair it. That intensity is only born of the darkness, which was born of mistake. That's one upside of sin. Whether it's relationship with God or relationship with others, that's, the, that's one upside. But I want to get to, and that's what we typically talk about. It's from Tanya. That's a typical explanation. I want to get to something even deeper today. This is something that I mentioned in one of the classes, in one of our um, This Can Happen JLI classes, but I want to reiterate it here. It's precisely through mistakes that we can fully own our relationship. As long as we're doing everything right, who says it's us? We're just following the rules. So it's almost the rules that are dictating what we ought to do, right? The rules told me to do this, that, or the other, and I'm doing it, so it's all driven by the rules. But the moment I break the rules is the moment I cut myself out of this whole dynamic, and now if I fight my way back into the relationship, that means that I'm choosing the relationship. Until then, the relationship was choosing me or the context was choosing me. Now I choose the relationship. I say, yes, I, I'm on the outside, but I want to be in. So not only is that more passionate, but moreover, it's more me. It's more, there's more of an investment of my energy into it. It's more of an ownership thing. I own that relationship. I own the journey because I own the struggle, which applies to our, both to our relationship with God 
and our relationship to others. When it comes to our relationship with God, both dynamics are at play. We mess up, we did something wrong, we feel bad about it, so now we're driven to do, to do the right thing. Also, we did something wrong, we messed up in our relationship with God, now we can own the journey back. Now it's us fighting to get back, fighting with ourselves really, but fighting to get back to a good place, but it's us. Same thing in human relationships, it's, this, it's, the, it's messing up that drives us with passion, with greater passion forward, and it's messing up that allows us to truly embrace and own our side of the relationship. So once again, I want to give a disclaimer before we close out tonight's class. The disclaimer is sin is not, is not in and of itself good. We're not celebrating the sin itself. What we're saying is, as the Rebbe pointed out in one of the texts prior, in the aftermath of sin, we find ourselves in the dumps. We find ourselves in a negative place. We find ourselves in a place of darkness. Kabbalah teaches us, Hasidic philosophy teaches us, the Rebbe teaches us that you and I have the ability, not only the ability, but the responsibility to cha channel that descent, to channel the darkness into a powerful force for good. Don't wallow in the darkness of our own mistakes. We recognize that this is an opportunity for a greater ascent, a more powerful ascent, because this too is where God wants me to be. This, this is the launching pad from where God wants me to jump ever higher. This is the power of the trauma retrospective, as mentioned in the Midrash. A father and a son who reminisce about the bad old times. Why? Because it's about thinking about the mistakes that we've made and how in the aftermath of those mistakes, we became stronger, our relationships became deeper, and we took greater responsibility in our own lives. Those are the upsides of sin. So sin is not good, but the upside of the aftermath of sin is an upside, as the Rebbe just pointed out in that last text that we read together inside, an upside that cannot be achieved any other way. That's why it happens in retrospect, because going through it, we have to feel bad about sin. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to have the rebounding effect. It has to feel dark for us to break out of the darkness. On the other hand, if we just feel dark and we don't break out, then that means we're going to wallow in misery and depression. And that's not good either. We're going to say, I'm a terrible person. Look what I've done. I'm gone. The relationship is broken. It's done forever. And that's it. That's not a good place to be in either. We need to, to recognize that what we did isn't good, that it's indeed a place of darkness, but there's a light, not at the end of the tunnel, there's a light that's right here, ready to be tapped into. This sense of darkness is the greatest impetus of growth. That's how we need to feel, and that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we realize that there's an upside to the mistakes that we make, the more we can realize the upside that indeed it can lead to. So what's, in the final analysis, what's the takeaway? Our Torah portion, the second of the Torah portions, tells us about the 42 journeys. They weren't all pretty. In fact, in most of them, something negative at some point happened. It seems like a, a depressing story. Look at our history. Aye, aye, aye. Do we, have to, do we have to really bring it up again? It's, like, it's so painful. We have to bring up the golden calf again, the complaints again, the fetching again, the sin of the spies again, Korach's rebellion, Moses hitting the rock. We have to bring up every single mistake again and again and again. What, we're, we're punishing ourselves again? No, no, the Midrash says. We're not punishing ourselves. This is the journey back. 
This is the retrospective. This is what we do after we've messed up. This is part two. This is not part one. Part one, the mess up, that's not fun. That's not fun. But part two is where the beauty lies. Part two is the realization that this too is from God. I chose it, but somehow this too is from God. And if it's from God, there's a lesson that I can learn from this. There's a growth that I can enjoy from this. Enjoy maybe not being the exact right word. There's growth that can be gained from this. There's light that can be created from the space of darkness. So what's the takeaway? In our lives, there are two types of challenges. The ones that come to us from the outside and the ones that we create from the inside. In both instances, this week's Torah portion reminds us of one simple rule. And that is, if it looks dark, look for the light. It's like the kid, it's like the optimist kid in the pony. Uh, sorry, oh man, I just messed it up. All right, I messed it up. You guys know that, you got, now I told you the ending. All right, there are two kids. There was an optimist and a pessimist. And the parents were like, oh, this kid is always pessimist. This kid is always optimist. We got to give them something else to, to, to work with. So they, they, they put, they, they, they decorated the rooms while the kids were in school one day. The, the pessimist, the kid, the kid who's a pessimist, they filled the room with toys and all wonderful things. And the optimist, they filled with uh, manure, horse manure. And the kids come back from school and the pessimist kid walk, pessimistic kid walks into his room. He sees the toys, he starts crying. So what's wrong? You got all these toys. Ugh, there's no batteries. The batteries are going to die. It's going to break. Ah, too, ugh, it's terrible. And then they go to the other room, the optimistic kid, and he's throwing the manure, playing with it, throwing it like it's uh, confetti. So what are you doing? The kid says, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And that's the moral of the story. With so much darkness, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. With all the darkness, whether it's outside inflicted or self-inflicted, what we're called upon to do is realize the light. Let us transform the darkness to light make it shine, and realize the purpose of all the negativity that we encounter, and let us say amen. All right, I did a lot of talking. This was like, there was so much to cover, and we didn't even cover all the text. So much talking. So now let me open it up. Any questions or comments, feel free to jump in. Ray, jump in. Um, yeah, there are some things that there's no light. I mean, there's no light, and the death of a loved one there's, what are we learning from that? What, where's the light? I'm, I don't see it. You can do it. Um, so we cannot say that in the death itself that there's a light. But can we say that a person can achieve growth or strength from the loss of a loved one that they would not have achieved otherwise? Does that justify it? No, we're not talking about justifying it. Does that make it better? I'm not talking about making it better. But is there a possibility for growth after loss a growth that could not have been achieved had there not been the loss, I would humbly say yes. Does that mean that it's good? Does that mean that it's worth it? Does that mean that it's celebrated? No, no, no. But does that mean that there's growth that happens with challenge in the aftermath of challenge? I believe that there is that possibility. And I believe also further that if you ask somebody objectively, what is healthier? What do you think, not judging anybody or whatever, but what do you think is, is healthier for oneself? 
to grow from challenge or to wallow in the darkness of challenge? Wouldn't we all say to grow from challenge? I think we'd all say to grow from challenge. So sim- in, in not so sophisticated terms, that's what tonight's class is. To remind us that every challenge has the, that, that we ought to look for the opportunities for growth in every challenge, maybe not right away. Like we said before, this is all a hindsight, a retrospective. This is, it's not immediate. Even when it came to the breaking of the tablets, God said to Moses, good job on breaking the tablets only six weeks after the tablets were broken. In other words, in the moment, it's actually inappropriate to, say, to look for the good. It's not appropriate. I just want to tell you a story. A story that happened in the land of Israel uh, many years ago. Uh, there was a vocational school, I believe it was in Hebron. Was it in Hebron? No, no, I'm mixing up stories. I'm sorry. I'm mixing up stories. There was a massacre in Hebron in the 20s, in early years. But then there was a vocational school in Kfar Chabad. There was a vocational school in Kfar Chabad. Vocational school meaning not, not a yeshiva where it's studying Talmud all day, but a st- where you study a little Judaism and also you get a trade and whatever. And um, it, was, it was founded by Chabad, by the Rebbe, and there was a massacre. A terrorist came in. And, 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 and just massacred, or maybe a few terrorists. I don't, I don't remember the exact story. It was a ma- many students and, and teachers lost their lives. And the message, the telegram, or the message came in to 770. And the Rebbe was devastated, as you can imagine. And, and the Rebbe didn't, didn't respond. There was no, like, response or blessing or whatever. After a certain amount of time, I don't remember how much time it, it took. The Rebbe basically said the following words. I'm going to paraphrase in English. When you rebuild or in the rebuilding process, you will find comfort. In other words, in building the school, and the Rebbe gave specific advice to build it bigger and better with more students. And, and in that, that will, that will help the healing process. So I'll ask you a question, and this is this. I think this is a good example. It's a real, real story. I, I know I'm missing some details, but it's more or less a story that happened, a real story. I'll ask you a question: What is a healthier approach to be devastated by this massacre and never rebuild again, or to rebuild? What's a healthier objectively? What's a healthier approach? I would say, I think it's, it's rebuilt. I mean, after all, in the aftermath of loss, what's the greatest mitzvah that we do is give tzedakah and create something in the memory of, whether it's a Torah class or whether it's a Torah scroll or whether it's a mitzvah campaign, to create something positive in the memory of a loved one. Why do we do that? Because we're channeling the grief into growth, challenging the darkness into light. That's exactly what we're talking about. But it's very important in telling that the Rebbe didn't say that right away. Because it's not appropriate right away. The first, upon hearing the news of a massacre, the first reaction should not be, oh, let's rebuild bigger and better. That means that there's a lack of sensitivity. That means that the darkness is not being taken seriously. So what I'm saying, and that's exactly what the Medrash is saying. The father didn't tell the son, look, we have a headache, you have a headache. Isn't that great? No. In retrospect, we can, we can acknowledge the growth. In retrospect, we realize it's time to grow, and this is the growth. 
but going into it, we feel the pain. And this is true with the, 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 the things that happen to us. And as I think the big breakthrough of today's class is the things that we do to ourselves. They are too part of God's plan. And it's a tricky, the, theologically, it's a tricky thing how free choice could still be part of God's plan. And I know it's tricky, right? How can we say that something that I chose freely is exactly what God in, intended? Was there really free choice? What if I chose the other way? It's theologically complicated, but we don't have to necessarily understand everything. We don't have to unravel everything in one night. But this is the core idea of tonight's class. The idea that is our responsibility to recognize the possibility to grow, the possibility to unleash light in our darkness, and ultimately to do so. Not necessarily day one, not moment one, but to grow, to, to move toward that place. It might take 40 years, like the journeys in the desert. 40 years later, they look back. But 40 years later, they, they, later they were able to look back. And that's a sign of healthy growth. That 40 years later, we can look back and say, you know what, that was devastating. That was heartbreaking. But you know what? I persevered. And look, look what came a result of that. That's, uh, that's it's truly beautiful. All right, any other questions or comments before we close out? Let's do one quick one. Anyone have? Yes, Paul. Basically, it's you learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Could have saved a lot of time if we just used that line, right? <laughs> Today's class. Yeah, it's basically learn from our mistakes and recognize that mistakes are a learning experience and necessarily learning experience that was given to us by God. So therefore, there has to be a learning experience in it. It's not just maybe, guaranteed. We have to find it. It's our responsibility to find it and keep on looking until we find it. All right, my friends, it's great to see you all. I'm going to close out tonight. Um, a quick announcement. Two quick announcements. Number one, second part of our three-part resurrection series is tomorrow night. If you're not yet in on the action, you don't want to get left behind on this. You want to get in on the resurrection while the getting's good. So join us tomorrow night, 8 p.m. If you're wondering, how do this resurrection thing sounds phenomenal. How do I get in? Just message me after the class, and we'll, we'll make it happen. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two, we have a phenomenal class, event, presentation, coming up this Tuesday night at 8 p.m. It is all about... It is all about archaeological secrets under Jerusalem. It's called the Archaeological Claim to Jerusalem, and it presents the underground treasures, a treasure trove of underground secrets in the holy city, under the holy city of Jerusalem on display in the comfort of your home. What, you think you have to get on a plane now and travel to Israel and put on... Put on some boots and some, you know, casual clothes and, and yeah, Indiana Jones hat and grab a shovel to, to explore. You kidding me? I bring this to your device, your laptop, your tablet, your phone, right? You can be in the comfort of your home, on your couch, in an excavation. That's what we're going to pull off Tuesday night, July 13th. Join me 8 p.m. You can find it on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. Um, finally, I'm just going to drop this one thing super fast. Check out on our website. We created a new section. 
It's called Retreat. It's for the upcoming JLI Retreat. There are different packages that are ready to go. Check out the website, intentionacademy.org. Um, on the Retreat tab on the top, you'll find the info. Click on the, on the thing. Choose like no lodging or something like that and put in the code IJA, three letters, capital I, capital J, capital A for Intown Jewish Academy to get $100 off any package that you'd like. You can go for a day, you can go for two days, you can go for all six days, whatever you want, it's all available. Yes, Dr. Maxi. So I went on, I got the email today, so I went on, but there's no schedule on there saying which lectures are going to be given and on what days and what times. So you're asking a practical question. How do I know when the good stuff's going down? Good, good. So we're going to put a focus on when, like for our community, Wednesday and Thursday, between me and, and Rabbi Schusterman and Dina, etc. So we're going to be splitting up time between Wednesday and Thursday. So either one will be okay. Um, with more specifics, uh, for more specifics, stay tuned because JLI, who's putting, who they, they put together the entire program, they haven't yet released the full schedule. So it, I don't think there's any penalty. I don't think there's any harm in waiting until they release it. I don't think prices climb. The, the code is not a limited time code. As far as I understand, it's valid, you know, anytime. So if, if you, if you, and I think it's valid, if you want to see like what's Wednesday, what's Thursday, you could just wait, wait a few days. Um, anyway, like if you were booking a hotel room, I don't mean you specifically. I mean, if, if one was booking a hotel, then you know you might want to get in before it's sold out because it's it's going to sell out. But if if our if the our local community is just going to go in for the day and you know roll in roll out, I don't see I don't see any any rush to do it before you get more information about the about the schedule. I'm going to reach out to my boys at JLI to see if I can get it. My understanding is that it's not yet finalized 100. percent So I, it, it's just yeah, stay tuned. But I will tell you that my understanding is also that Thursday there's a concert at night. It's like toward the end of like. The, the the more days in you have more people rat, like teachers from you know around the country that are able to join and start doing their sessions so for what it's worth um the food is phenomenal the speakers are phenomenal i've been there multiple times as a presenter in other cities they move around the country um and it's it's a really tremendous experience like top-notch high class you know gorgeous food is amazing you know, it's like a it's like a stationary cruise, food-wise, with entertainment and classes and learning. It's like just nonstop. Like every every hour, there's half a dozen sessions of like top speakers from around the world. So check it out. It's on our website. Uh, check it out on the on the JLI website, jretreat.com. We link over to it. But there's a specific pricing page that has a discount. If you have any trouble with the discount, just let me know. I can walk you through the process at any time. All right. I think that's it. See you all. Bye. Regards from Pittsburgh. Regards to my mom, Thank who's you. right here. Thank you so much, Robert. Pleasure, Thank pleasure. You. All right, see you guys. Lila Tove, take care.